Hi, and welcome to Third Waves. Third is a platform that amplifies underrepresented voices through print, events, and on the airwaves. On this show, we interrogate the intersections of culture and activism, bringing you interviews and discussions with guests who have knowledge and lived experience on the topic at hand. I am Rona, stylist, creative director, and founder of Third. I am Tribe, DJ, radio host, and music editor at Third. And I'm Daniela. I'm a writer, musician, and producer at Third. In this episode, we will be discussing vaccines and vaccine hesitancy, shedding light on some of the myths and misinformations around the COVID vaccines, how they work, and what to expect from them. We will also consider what factors are contributing to the disproportionately low uptake of the vaccine amongst the UK's quote-unquote black and minority ethnic groups. With the rollout now being open to young adults under 40, we will be addressing legitimate concerns around the vaccine to provide information that aids in helping people make informed decisions on taking it. On today's show, we are joined by three guests. The first of which is Dr. Rama El-Mahadi, a medical doctor and epidemiological researcher with a PhD in public health from Imperial College London. She is an advocate for decolonizing medicine and science and runs a consultancy teaching and training on the impact of historical power dynamics on modern day medicine. From the outbreak of the first wave, she worked on COVID wards in the UK and has joined many medical and academic professionals in condemning the government's handling of the pandemic. She's currently based in Copenhagen, Denmark, where she is investigating immune-mediated diseases and cancer. We'll also be hearing from Anita Kurtind, a project manager by day and the founder of Pretty Parcel, a lifestyle and bridal brand elevating special occasion gifts through meaningful and supportive services. A self-professed busy bee who loves to work out and travel, Anita's schedule was turned upside down after a spate of illnesses, including fatigue, headaches and muscle pain, which forced Anita to investigate further into her health and discover she is one of many young people under 30 experiencing the effects of long COVID. And lastly, we'll hear from Dr. Vanessa Appiah, a consultant physician in genitourinary and HIV medicine and the clinical lead for sexual health at Bart's Health NHS Trust. Vanessa is passionate about reducing inequalities in healthcare. In her clinical work, she has explored barriers to engagement in care of marginalized populations, particularly along the intersections of race, gender, and health. She has received an NHS 70 Windrush Award for her clinical work and is a Fulbright Scholar with a Master's in Public Health from Harvard University. So obviously a lot of information has been passed to us during the pandemic. But alongside this, there's been a lot of like myths, rumours, call them even conspiracy theories that have come through about the vaccine. And one of the really interesting things I found is that, you know, they've been hitting us in our very personal sphere. So the WhatsApps, the Instagrams, Twitter, places which we usually go to either 
you know, socially or professionally or even just in our, you know, leisurely connect with people, really personal spaces. And a lot of these stories have also been coming from people who really matter to us in our lives, like our family and our friends and their intention sometimes in sending these stories has been to to share information, certainly, but also to, to, to show they care. And so, you know, unlike the news, which, uh, you know, I think I've spoken to a lot of people and I can definitely say for myself at a certain point in the pandemic, I had to almost take a break from and listen to very selectively these the, the sort of stories you will hear through these channels take you completely at a chance and they're very hard to completely ignore once you've seen just because, you know, they are coming from such personal places. So with that being said, I think it's really shed light on some of the deeper concerns that people have about obviously COVID-19, but certainly for the ones that are being spread now about the vaccine the vaccine itself. And it's a major part of this episode to obviously riddle through some of these myths and shed, you know, shed light on truths and misinformations or complete disinformations, lies. But um, just to start off with, what have been some of the concerns or things that you guys have noticed that, that people close to you or around you have stated about the vaccine? I've heard quite a few interesting ones. Um, I heard, <laughs> so like you mentioned, Rona, about uh, WhatsApp, uh, especially during the lockdown, I feel like a lot of uh, older people um, from different ethnic minorities would often get their messages through WhatsApps. And that's how they kind of stayed communi- in communication, uh, like everyone else, but specifically um, tight-knit, uncles, aunties around the world kind of thing. And so there were videos and messages going around um, of pastors in random countries or, you know, someone preaching saying, if you put onion in the corner of your living room, that will ward off COVID. Or, you know, if you put rub, which is like a a special kind of cream um, on your chest, that will fight off COVID. And I thought that was very ridiculous but at the same time we I can say that now but looking back in hindsight where there was very little information about what exactly COVID was you know scientists were still trying to work it out you know the, the information was trickling out as the information you know the research was going to fill that void you know loads of false information came out and unfortunately many people kind of fell into that loop of believing people who they know, you know, pass on these informations that would fill that gap. Another one was uh, a lot about Bill Gates um, and his connection to vaccines in general, because obviously, as you know, Bill and Melinda Gates had the foundation that had already been going around and and working on vaccines in general. Um, so many people saw that as um, him being involved in some sort of conspiracy for population control. And I know a lot of ethnic minorities took it that step forward and thought it was a way to control certain populations specifically. The actual concern that I came across was one that actually, you know, even scared me when I was 
um, when I was thinking about getting the vaccine and stuff was that it affects your fertility. And one of the things that I found really interested about this is it was a clear instance of where like misinformation or like science versus language has maybe led to people coming to the wrong conclusions. So the Joint Committee of Vaccines and Immunizations, the JCVI, which is the body that basically approves any sort of vaccine in the UK, for sure, in their findings about the vaccine initially, like they produced this massive report and say who should have it and, you know, who shouldn't, that sort of thing. And I think they had put down that they couldn't say that pregnant women should take the vaccine because they didn't know what the effects were on fertility. So I think it was something that we were kind of watching out for, or they just didn't have the data to prove it was safe. And so at first, pregnant women were recommended not to take the vaccine because um, that's just what they said. And later on, there's been like this massive push now for pregnant women to now take the vaccine because they found that, you know, a lot of women who are taking it are actually doing fine. They adjust really well to it. And actually the risks of getting COVID while you are pregnant and going into like, you know, early labor or anything like that, also just being intensely ill while you're pregnant was worse than way worse than anything they imagined would come through the vaccine. But I just thought it was interesting there where like, because science almost said that they didn't have the data, the sort of conclusion, a lot of public bodies and and also like headlines, journalists, individuals came to was that there was a concern around it. And I mean, I... I still feel like whether you want to take the vaccine when when you're pregnant or not is a completely personal choice, but it's comforting to know that it doesn't actually affect your fertility and you won't be, you know, more at risk if you take it while you're pregnant. What I thought about that was, and this is what I thought was quite interesting, when with when there is a lack of research or when there is any level of concern, it is often announced. So uh, when there was concerns about the AstraZeneca and when there was concerns about the lack of information around or actual research around what the effects of having the vaccine would have on pregnant women, um, and they would step forward and say, we don't have enough information or there is a concern here. But People have taken that to kind of say that there is not enough information. If you know what I mean, it's as grounds, as you were saying, Rona, as grounds for the space for conspiracy. But the very fact that people have been coming forward, you know, official bodies have been coming forward and going, here's what we've got. Here's what we don't have. Here are our concerns have shown a level uh, of transparency in the research. Yeah, I think also what you said about people like the like the fact that some of these bodies have admitted that the data isn't there really connects to another anxiety that I think people who are waiting maybe to take the vaccine have, which is that because this is a new thing, they don't want to like 
they don't want to take it yet. It's not that they don't want to take it at all. It's not that they're anti-vaccine. And I really disagree with the whole labeling people who haven't taken the vaccine or don't want to take the vaccine anti-vaxxers because I just don't think that's useful. But a lot of people are quite rightly so waiting for more information to be out before they feel comfortable enough to take the vaccine or waiting to be able to understand the different vaccines more before they do that too. Yeah, I agree with that. I think, I think this is so interesting because we're kind of uh, crisscrossing between like very legitimate concerns where there are like real answers for to some which maybe there are less answers for because we're still quite early days with this with these vaccines just to give up a couple of examples of another legitimate concern, but that has answers, I think is around like ingredients of the vaccines. Some people are wondering, is it halal? Is it kosher? Does it contain alcohol? The official ingredients list can be found and the faith groups, you can, you can see the statements around that. And the vaccines are definitely, they don't contain any animal products. There's a very, 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 very small amount of ethanol within the vaccines, I believe. But um, again, that's something that's been like said that by the faith groups that it's fine to take too. One of the other concerns people tend to have about these vaccines, it's the speed at which they've come about. So especially when considering historically vaccine development takes much longer. One misconception is that stages in the clinical trials have been skipped or missed out in order to achieve that speed. But that's really not how they did it. It's been made possible through many, many factors, you know, an unparalleled global focus and funding and by researchers, developers and funders collaborating to streamline the processes. So there are some really great resources such as on the Wellcome Trust where you can read more about this topic in particular and watch there's some great videos explaining some of the details but just to list a few key things the COVID-19 virus belongs to uh, a family of virus that researchers already had a degree of familiarity with so they had an understanding of how it might behave which helped um, in the research process and in terms of the speed of recruitment of trial participants, so many more trial participants put themselves forward um, for this, these trials as compared to normal drug development. So that, that recruitment process itself was much faster than in normal times, as it were. Also, additionally, that usually there's a lot of waiting time in vaccine development projects and this time around, a lot of this waiting time was cut out. So, for example, you know, manufacturing and trials would usually happen consecutively, whereas in these vaccines, they happened concurrently with each other so that uh, manufacturing started before testing were complete, which risks money but saves time if and when it is approved. And so from a budgetary point of view, which I do also find really interesting, is that the cost of this kind of development process, i.e. fast tracking, is much higher than normal vaccine development projects, but it's been considered a worthwhile investment um, compared to the impact and cost of global lockdown on the economy.
So Rama, I think the first question we wanted to ask you was just to explain a bit about what it is you do, about your particular interests as a doctor, and also you worked during the pandemic, didn't you? You were based in Copenhagen and um, then came to the UK specifically because of the outbreak of the pandemic. So how was that like for you? Yeah, my name's Rama Mahdi. I'm, I'm a medical doctor and an epidemiology researcher, actually, and I'm currently working in uh, Copenhagen, Denmark with a research group, and I'm looking at the role of infection and inflammation in immune-mediated diseases, specifically inflammatory bowel disease. My background is I've got a PhD in public health from Imperial College London and a few years of experience working as a junior doctor in the NHS, uh, as well as lecturing medical students in global health at Imperial College London as well. During the last uh, year at the start of the first wave, I was actually in, in Denmark already doing the, the research work I'm doing at the moment. The Danes had gone into lockdown. I think most of the the most of Europe um, at the start of March, mid-March, had sort of uh, seen what was happening in Italy and were taking steps towards uh, social distancing restrictions quite quickly. The UK wasn't, though. And ironically, the UK uh, had the highest sort of case hospitalizations, case fatality, and just cases overall <laughs> of all of Europe, second to sort of Italy at that point. Um, so I uh, just really felt I needed to come back and and uh, contribute to um, to the effort on the COVID awards. And uh, it was it was pretty hard. It was a really unique time for, I think, a lot of healthcare workers. Uh, it was really overwhelming. But the one thing that sort of uh, was very important is that we were kind of all, all in it together. There was a good sense of, of solidarity with all the staff um, because nobody was really comfortable or knew what was happening with this disease. It was unique to anyone. I mean, you could be a consultant with... 30 of experience in, in infectious disease or respiratory medicine, and you still didn't really know what was going to happen tomorrow. And kind of for, for a while, it was actually useful having um, an understanding of uh, public health, epidemiology and infection in, in that very sort of usually hierarchical and clinical setting that's based on, on that experience. The main thing that, like, I suppose really shocked me was just the way in which uh, vulnerable people were affected by the disease and the severity of the disease in even quite young people. Uh, we had a couple of patients who were, you know, middle-aged, younger, who were coming off weeks and weeks of ITU and ventilatory support. And thankfully, they weren't as common as with you know, people who we knew would be at risk for for other diseases because you always get blindsided when you don't really know what's going on and a perfectly healthy young person gets affected like that. Um, but it still occurred. And so that was, I think, probably quite shocking and just not knowing what was coming around the corner. We were all locked away in our houses, so we have no way of really understanding what it would, would be have been like on a ward, um, especially being a doctor who was doing, you know, clinical research and coming back to the UK to, to support what was the, at that time this sort of like unknown disease. But previous to this, to the pandemic, we know that you talked a lot about like decolonization in regards to medicine. We talk a lot about decolonization on the show, but usually it's in regards to education. And when we're talking about education, oftentimes we talk about how we can like make the syllabus and the people we read um, 
not just come from this demographic that it's very white and very male and more reflect, you know, other communities, other people out there. When we're talking about decolonization in medicine, what are we specifically talking about there? So a lot of my decolonization sort of work did start in medical education specifically. So it does relate to exactly what you've been saying. That's a really big part of it, providing a sort of heterogeneity of texts, right? So it's not one kind of understanding of the world that is a given and it's it encourages a pluralism uh, and changes the dynamics of the classroom to be more inclusive, to be able to actually effectively learn from that pluralism. So you're not just sort of saying, oh, this is an interesting point of view, but it doesn't really mean anything. You know, it's about weighting equally uh, different worldviews. And of course, we do that because we understand that the predominant narrative in the academy and, you know, in the medical academy as well, is not necessarily the quote unquote truth of, of, of the matter. But beyond that, um, it's really about being able to appropriately contextualize why things are the way they are today. And that's particularly important for, for medicine and public health because we see disparities all the time. I mean, the one thing that we saw from the pandemic was all of the, all of the you know, inequities that we see in our society was just sort of a floodlight was shone on them. They were just magnified hugely. And that was actually nothing of a surprise to most doctors and public health specialists. It was a shock. It was a shock to the system. It was really unpalatable and it was horrible to see, but it was not a surprise. We know these things happen in, and they're manifest in health. We know those disparities exist. So the, the really important thing for practitioners is understanding why. Uh, so they don't go forward and normalize it in their practice. So they're more comfortable challenging it and changing it. And I think a very important part of that is actually relying on being able to expose historic injustices that have been sort of cemented and woven into our society, whether that be be as broadly speaking as sort of like legal or cultural or neoliberal sort of things that we've we've seen that play a part in in creating the the world as it is today particularly the world of of you know western biomedicine and i think that's kind of the trick beyond that you know i think that's the key thing that i work in anyway beyond that though i think there's other there's other things i've sort of alluded to the neoliberal element and i think that's particularly important when we think about decolonizing um, medicine and healthcare because funding is important in health and particularly collective funding. You can't, it's one of those things a bit like education that you can't really do very well individualistically. It just doesn't work in a, in a sort of capitalist society, effective healthcare. So that really is a very important thing to be able to challenge. And then the last thing is, is diversity. And, you know, these things all relate to one another, but you do need diversity um, in in your practice, in the people who are who are responsible for healthcare, but also in the people who are more senior, in the people who are making decisions. And that's still a key issue that we have in a lot of of clinical workplaces and research spaces in the UK. That there is isn't that diversity there when it comes to making decisions. Rama, what do you think of the fact that for some of the trials, say the Oxford trials for AstraZeneca, 
the representation of people of color on the trials has been quite low. So I know for people in the Asian community on those trials, representation was at about 5% and for black people it was at less than 1%. Do you think this is having an impact on the low uptake of the, the vaccine for these communities? See, this is a really interesting question, actually. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to segue slightly to answer your question. It relates to a wider and really important question around understanding race as biological and understanding race as, as a social construct. You know, we know and we say all the time our race is just a, it's, it's a social construct. But what happens in that racialized socialization manifests in your bio- biology. And it manifests in ways that aren't always measurable clinically. So this is why it's really important to be able to get diverse clinical trial participants from different communities, um, from different racial communities. But it's really important that we keep in mind that it is not about our genetics and our actual quote unquote racial differences, because it doesn't really exist at a biological level, right? Um, a good example that I like to give is that I am, I mean, I'm Northeast African. I'm from Sudan. We have a relatively low prevalence of falciparum and malaria. Now, where there is a lot of falciparum and malaria, there's a lot of um, the sickle cell allele. And when I go to a doctor and I say I'm tired, my GP, one of the first things they'll interestingly always ask me is, have you been tested for sickle cell? That is a direct product of the fact that they see me as black. I'm black African because I've ticked the box that says black African. You know, they're not wrong (laughs) in that. But black African communities in the UK historically have come from areas of West Africa. Talking big populations from Ghana, Ghana, Nigeria, uh, Central Africa and Caribbean populations, of course, might have their heritage in West Africa. And those places have really high um, uh, density of 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 falciparum malarium and they have equally high rates of of sickle cell and what happens is then you take these people you call them black not understanding that they're ancestrally a very specific group and then you extrapolate that to all black people and then when i walk into the clinic they ask me that the first thing they want to screen me for is sickle cell when i say i'm tired or i've got anemia so these are the kind of nuances that we're talking about when we're when we're when we need when I say we need to diversify clinical trials. But you know, race is not genetics, and we really need to be able to remember that. But at the same time, hold fast to the fact that racism is very prevalent in a lot of scientific research. <laughs> I think that's such an interesting point. It's really like made me think about this ideology I came about, I came across while I was researching for this show of the, the magical Negro, which is this con- like a colonial concept which endows black people with some positive strengths, like it says we're quite strong and um, resilient and et cetera, things like that. But a lot of that was used to enable or to legitimize quite barbaric treatments of our of black bodies. And one of the things that I think is quite interesting about this ideology is almost how it seems to have been internalized sometimes by the black community, because um, in the wake of the pandemic, I think there was this idea that, uh, you know, melanin, because we have melanin, we were going to be fine. Or because, you know, Africa was largely not affected by COVID, 
uh, black people as a whole were going were somehow protected. And uh, when you just consider the fact that, you know, we've now seen the factual numbers and we've seen that because of the social economic positions that a lot of black and people of color and racialized people were put into, that we've actually been put more at risk. It kind of really brings that, that point home to us to a, to a point, the fact that we almost, we all need to let go of these ideal, these ideas about race. Absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more with you. And some of like the most heartbreaking sort of interactions I've, I've had with people have been knowing deeply what people have experienced in terms of sort of discrimination and prejudice when they go, go into, you know, healthcare spaces. It's this belief that the service being administered to them or the treatment being administered to them is incorrect because they're fundamentally different in some way that somehow still stuck with us. And that's probably the biggest challenge like for us, for our community at the moment. And I feel like the academy does need to, particularly the medical academy and researchers need to, to work this out. Doctors do need to do that work, but we can't rely on them. I think a lot of it needs to change at a grassroots community level. When you were speaking that, I was almost reminded of the title of the show, which is almost dispelling myths uh, around the vaccine. Definitely around the height of the pandemic, there was a lot, a lot of conspiracy theories um, floating around places like Instagram and WhatsApp groups. And a lot of these theories definitely felt like they were directed towards people of colour. I don't know whether you think there is a legitimate reason for why maybe people of colour have been swayed by some of these narratives. I'm not really thinking about um, things like microchips or anything like that. I'm thinking more about when people have questioned the purpose and the intention of the vaccine. I think there is a really, there is a reason why that's the case. I mean, I think even if you don't, like I said, even if you don't know um, like a history of racial exploitation and abuse in, in, in biomedical medicine ourselves, like in our communities, we know simply from our lived experiences. And I think the interaction we have, like I've said, it, it makes it clear that a lot of the services there, um, it's not sort of meant to work for your benefit because it was never designed in that way. And there's a very long history. If you look, you know, even in, in global health, which is sort of my area of interest and has been the field that I taught, Everything we understand as historical was tropical medicine. And before that, it was military, uh, missionary relief medicine. Before that, any health, you know, any biomedical health in the way that we think about it now, any doctors going, going into the colonies, which is still, whether we like it or not, still how the world, you know, you can change the name over and over again, but this still seems to be how the world seems to be divided and stru structured um, in the Western sort of like viewpoint um, is, is never, it was never meant for native populations or indigenous populations. It was meant to, you know, prevent malaria in British troops and British soldiers and the governors. That's, that's where, where you, where malaria research started. And if you, even the infectious disease, you know, the origins of it were, and the reason why it's been something that people have such an interest in is because by nature it is infectious. And it's, uh, you know, if you're living in a certain aerial population, the best way to counter it and control it is actually probably, you probably have to do ha extend um, public health services, whether it be sort of sanitation measures, um, treatment or vaccination to local populations. But the, the sad matter of fact is, is those were never, 
um, the intention of the medical establishment to start with. Um, and those people, whether abroad or at home today now, in their, in their othering, in their dehumanization, were never the intended recipients of, of those services. Um, and when you, when you work back through those things, you really begin to understand. And, you know, there's a whole host of, of different scenarios in which or different pathways in which this has developed. But you really do begin to understand why people um, have the experiences they do and why they know that they probably do have a good reason to be cautious. But having said all of that, obviously, it's not to detract from the fact that um, or it's not really to, to diminish the fact that a vaccination is very effective. And my method of viewing these things are not sort of, I think a lot of, of people who are hesitant have the view that these things are intentional, you know, that you, you were talking about conspiracy theories. And I think there's, there's different sorts of conspiracy theories, but it's, and the microchip one is is separate. I think you're right. I think the the others that have come up that I hear more often, say from you know, family members or or other people I speak to, is related to sort of targeted infertility of black people, which has happened in the past. You know, in in state sanctioned eugenics, um, and people were well well aware of what was going on, um, and that's as good a reason to be cautious as any, but. The thing you need to understand in that mentality is not that they are thinking they're harming this group. What they're doing is they're thinking they're protecting something. So it's, it's about the protection of, of, of power and privileged groups. And if you can begin to sort of shift your understanding of, of harm or good, which actually is, is how we tend to simplify things even in medicine, and shift them to an understanding of power and privilege and protection of certain groups of people that perhaps isn't afforded to others or is at the expense of others, then you begin to actually, you're better able to dispel some of those myths. And the, the use of, of, of science in the sense of understanding the biology is, is really helpful with that. So fertility is extraordinarily complex right um you could get a fertility expert on here i'm certainly not one and for them to be able to sort of go through all the processes in 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 the bodies of, of separate people who have to come together to to make a child you know the things that could go wrong in different scenarios and where you could have fertility where you know where people will be infertile in other scenarios is extraordinarily complex so there is I would like to be able to see a technology, it would be incredible to me, that could effectively target all the pathways for fertility in someone effectively over a longer period of time. Obviously, we have contraceptives that, that last a couple of weeks to a couple of months um, that also have been shown to be used in really nefarious ways, but it just wouldn't happen in a vaccination. There's just, uh, just don't have that kind of technology and also, it would be very difficult to be able to target that to the concept of black race or brown race, because it just, like I said, at a biological level, that doesn't really exist. So those conspiracy theories are really best countered by, you know, the application of, 
of a little bit of biological knowledge, which is useful because people like me who are medical practitioners have that, right? And also an interrogation of, of power. That's it, really. Just to go on to another topic that I think people are legitimately maybe concerned about, um, which is the possible long-term side effects of these vaccines or let's say some side effects which are not known yet. What I'm thinking of is what came out after the AstraZeneca um, vaccine was re- was given to more people than there were a very um, a rare occurrence of people having blood clots. And this became a big, big thing that people were really worried about and talked about. I just wondered if you could speak to what kind of practices that are standard within vaccine vaccine development that safeguards from sort of a long-term side effects or from from showing up these rare rare side effects that people are really concerned about basically Mm. yeah so um I think it's it's true first and foremost that we have to say that when it comes to understanding long-term effects of of vaccination, this vaccination in particular, we're not completely clear on, but we're never really completely clear on long-term effects of of medical devices and interventions. And, you know, that's true of all pharmaceuticals, really. It's reassuring, though, that we know that follow-up for side effects is is always ongoing. So in all countries and pharmaceutical producers, so all countries that approve it and pharmaceutical producers, along with the doctors themselves, you have a responsibility if you administer something and someone comes back to you with a problem that you make a note of it and you send it back to to central um, reporting. And that would be sort of Public Health England or the British National Formulary in the UK. It's also reassuring like the majority of, to know that the sort of majority of vaccine side effects manifest in the short to medium term after administration. And that's usually the case for all vaccinations up until now. And then there are more severe side effects um, and particularly with this vaccination, as you've pointed out with the, the viral vector, Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine is the, the bleeding and the clotting disorders, which is happens when it does occur in the week, but very important to point out that it's really, really, really rare. And it's the same with the with the Janssen um, vaccine, which has recently been approved here in the UK as well. It's very difficult to protect anyone effectively without protecting everyone. So although young people do have a reduced risk of severe disease, which by the way is not non-significant or non-existent but it's also uh, the consequences of long covid that we're not completely clear on and the fact that that does happen in young people at sort of three times the rate that that we see of of long-term symptoms in something like the flu or other viral infections and we don't really know what's going on there at all so being able to reduce the risk of that with the knowledge that there is a very very small risk of these clotting and bleeding disorders which by the way we can clinically manage if we if we're watching out for them the the way up is is pretty straightforward yeah across that um that answer you gave just then and the one to rona's question earlier what i found really interesting specifically was a you're, you're kind of illuminating how uh, people can think that the vaccine has powers that it doesn't have. So what's that thinking that it can target a specific demographic of people or target a specific thing like um, fertility when it when the technology can't do that, as well as um, the side effects being most side effects manifesting themselves 
mid short to midterm, which is something that I didn't know before either, which I found really interesting to hear about as well. Uh, you mentioned a, a lot about communication and I guess um, communicating to people on the ground level. Um, and I thought it was quite interesting that the government has been seeking advice from public health experts to kind of guide the way that they're navigating through this whole COVID. And I, ju- I just wondered in terms of the, I guess, public health and its role moving forward, because I, I know there's been talks about, um, I guess, living in a post-pandemic world and the, the tools that we've now gained as a country or globally to move forward. And let's say if there is another kind of global health crisis. Um, so I just kind of wanted to get your thoughts on the role of um, public health as a role and, and the way that it communicates information as well to the general public. Well, wow, that's a big question. That's a really good one. Um, I think it does. I mean, I can... Maybe I'll speak a little bit to the role of, of public health. We need to be able to have an understanding of how, you know, healthcare systems, people's individual uh, risk factors, people's environments, you know, relate to one another um, because a lot of people could die and it shuts down borders and entire economies. But there's lots of lots of pandemics that have been creeping up on us for a while. So I think this pandemic has been really I don't know, for want of a better word, useful in reminding us uh, why this kind of, of, of work is important and it's necessary to invest in preventative health factors. So the communication part, I'm not so, um, I'm not so sure about. I think, I think it's challenging because oftentimes, as we've seen in the UK as well, the public health experts are not necessarily the ones who are responsible for the communication. You know, it's going to be down to, to the government. So we, we have to find the places and the spaces where we can bring logic to the fore, because sometimes the interests of those in power don't necessarily align with the interests of the, of the general public or, you know, as public health practitioners would look, would consider. The only other thing I think, I want to comment on um, is the challenge around, and it is a real challenge. And I, uh, I, I think that there are lots of conversations for and against that are very compelling. It's it's a challenge around vaccination passports, and I think this might be an example of the place we can get stuck with something like trying to make something more inclusive or diversifying. You know, there's. We know that some groups are more hesitant of vaccination and we know why, because we've just talked about that. We've talked about all the history. We've talked about um, the power imbalances. Sometimes it's just a question of access, right? Because we've just talked about like how most of the global south and lots of black populations just don't have access to vaccination. So people don't receive the vaccine at the same rates when they're marginalized for whatever reason than, than the more privileged people we see in our societies. So when we make compelling arguments that might be quite compelling, you know, or force all these young people who want to go clubbing to, to get their second jab or whatever, we're not really considering the damage that we're doing downstream in that because we are further isolating people who either consciously or unconsciously have found themselves in a position where they can't access these things and they can't continue to engage in society and they are further excluded. 
So we have to be really careful when we're um, thinking about the best way forward of protecting people. And it needs to come from a place of understanding as opposed to some kind of blanket measure um, that says, if you don't do this, you can't get this or you can't go there. Um, we need to unpick why people aren't in these places um, and taking up these things to start with. That is such a strong point, Rama. I think uh, even from doing a, a bit of research on the history, whenever you try to force people to do stuff, they always rebel. And that, like, I think being pressurized or sort of like pulled in a direction to do things sometimes is one of the reasons why there's been mistrust in the past. And I think the vaccine passport scenario is one of the ways we could make that mistake again today. So, yeah, thank you for bringing that to the forefront. forefront. And it's not to say that it shouldn't be there, but I think if, it, if we are going to create something like that, we need to have had a reckoning with, with why we have different uptakes of, of vaccination in different groups. And we need to make allowances or extra measures for people from the global south. Because when we do that, then we will be forced to make sure there is more equality in vaccination, right? If, if we have to go the extra mile to provide resources for people who aren't vaccinated or we can't exclude them, it's easier to make the extra effort to make sure they're vaccinated. Yeah, thank you so much, Rama. Our questions were very difficult and you've answered them superbly. So thank you very, very much. Oh, no worries at all. It was like really an absolute pleasure. Could you just tell us for our listeners, um, anyone out there, how we can follow your work and you on social media? What sh where should we go and what should we look out for? I do have a Twitter. Um, I'm at Rama Almadi and I'm mainly uh, tweeting like irritation at different race-based science stuff um, and, you know, <laughs> people actually using them in them using it in their medicine and so that would be the the main place to go for me um if you're if you're interested in reaching out to me i'm very happy you know just send me a message if you have any questions as well right now i'm starting to do a little bit more work on sort of de decolonial training in in um medical education and scientific research um so we've got, got myself and a colleague of mine who's in public engagement. Always great to work with, with them because they actually know how to speak to people. <laughs> and we're just trying to create um, programs for, for changing people's perceptions of, of what they're doing for more of an interrogative understanding of power and privilege um, as opposed to just, you know, good science, bad science or good medicine, bad medicine. Um, which uh, hopefully we'll be doing a little bit more of um, in the future. I think now there might be an appetite for people to listen and change their, their practice a bit. I think... One of the main catalysts for this episode as well has been the fact that there are disproportionately low amounts of people of colour who are taking the vaccine and, and, you know, people from certain demographics. So, you know, black people, black, both Caribbean, African people, and also, you know, some South Asian people as well who are 
like their uptake of the vaccine has been quite low. I think there are legitimate historical reasons for why that is the case. A recent UK study has found that black, Asian, minority, ethnic people are nearly three times more likely to reject the COVID-19 vaccine for themselves and their children. And this is from the Parents and Guardians' views on the acceptability of a future COVID-19 vaccine, a multi-method study in England. Many of the conspiracies that have been circulating around the COVID vaccine has been connected to, I guess, um, fears and concerns that have arisen from previous histories regarding the Western way in which science, medicine, medical research has dealt with concepts of ethnic minorities and the idea of race, um, which isn't a pretty history. Um, so I'm going to quickly delve into some of these ideas that have been recirculating around this time of the pandemic, which has helped to kind of, I guess, reinforce some of those um, fears in which people have had. Um, so just a heads up, we're going to be dealing with some heavy topics as I quickly give a run through uh, of some of these concepts and ideas that have um have lingered and haven't really been addressed in the public sphere. If you go back, you know the history of uh, eugenics, uh, which unfortunately is indirectly connected to Charles Darwin um, with his idea of evolution and in his book, The Origins of Species. And his cousin, uh, Sir Francis Galton, was a proponent of eugenics. And he literally became a figurehead around Europe, around the idea of the ideal race. Uh, he was quoted in saying, eugenics is a science which deals with all influences which improve the inborn qualities of a race, also with those which develop them to utmost advantage. I quote this only because it, when it became quite a stronghold in the way in which science saw different groups of people. Um, and you can see the train of lineage from this concept. So, for example with African-Americans not being considered um, fully human, but more three-fifths of a human. Um, so that led the way to, let's say, uh, J. Marion Sims in the mid-19th century, the father of gynecology, where he would test on enslaved black women um, without anesthesia. From this, he developed many kind of uh, procedures that we still use today. And, and so there's this long history of science not necessarily prioritizing the needs of ethnic minorities. And then also the history of forced sterilization, not only African-Americans, but also in the UK amongst Asians and black British people. So in 1976, there was testing done using a birth control shot of Depo Provera, which was given to women without their knowledge and was, uh, I guess, forced sterilization without consent. Um, and it wasn't until the OWAAD started to protest about it that it become a thing of concern. It's also um, with different countries around the world. In Zimbabwe, Depo Provera 
was banned in 1981 because of the fact that it was used by the government, which was white at the time before Mugabe came into control, to um, forcibly sterilize the population of Zimbabwe, the black population. Um, I guess during this time was the Tuskegee experiment that happened in the US in 1932, um, where the Tuskegee Institute Um, decided to experiment on 600 black men, 399 who had syphilis and 201 who did not. Although there were medicines that they could take eventually to help them um, with their syphilis, they weren't informed. In fact, they were actively discouraged to take it because the USPHS wanted to see what would happen to them and to study what would happen to them as the syphilis began to kind of take hold of these individuals. I was just going to add, a lot of those men thought they were being given free medical care, right? Exactly. And that the study lasted over like 30 years. Yes. So you think to yourself, this is like a long period of time and quite an intentional abuse of of power. And as I said, like there's a running thread from eugenics um, onwards, and we haven't fully healed from that period of time. We haven't fully acknowledged that history. And so it's left as conversational pieces that have been shared amongst different groups of populations. So when I guess ethnic minorities talk about this, that it comes from a, a genuine history and a genuine concern that hasn't been fully addressed. I think a lot of this kind of alludes to one of the big barriers when it comes to people and the comfort they feel around the vaccine, which is like mistrust. Um, I actually found out about the Trovan trial, which was another thing that took place in Africa. It was almost quite shocking to me when I found out that the company was Pfizer. But basically they did like an illegal trial of like an unregistered drug to fight the epi- like the outbreak of meningitis um, in 1996 or like the 90s. Um, and they basically tested, they wanted to test the efficacy of a new version of a working drug and it was an antibiotic called Trova Fluoraxin, Trovan. And basically half the children who had meningitis were, or in treatment for meningitis, were given the Trovan version. And another people were given like the gold standard version, which was, you know, the standard version. And what they found was like, basically five children died of the new version. And also, you know, another six children died who were participating in the regular sort of version. And basically this wasn't carried out as a test to the knowledge of these children's like parents. They thought their children were getting help for their conditions. So um, actually 30 parents sued Pfizer in 2001. They took them to court in New York. Um, and then later the trial was was moved to Nigeria. But yeah, companies and pharmaceutical companies have exploited powers with definitely the black body. And we see here, even with children. So there is this real distrust that is even relatively quite close to us. If you think to yourself, like, you know, 1996 in my living period, 
I think it's inseparable, you know, the the fact that big pharmaceuticals and and their corporate greed is also woven into this whole this whole complexity because that is what it is, but it doesn't mean that they don't simultaneously produce medication that do work. People are aware of the misgivings and the then the the legal uh, you know settlements that these companies have had to pay. They've been found guilty and they've paid for these for misgivings. Or some haven't paid. Or so yeah, absolutely some haven't paid. And here I am, like, oh yeah, I've got the Pfizer vaccine. Yeah. And I think it ties in neatly to kind of what's ha- what happened during the same time as this pandemic. So the Black Lives Matter movement, the whole idea about um being aware of very way, various ways in which intersectionality or marginalized groups have been affected um, by our societal structures, structures, I think ties into people being very kind of cautious. So I think from that happening coincidentally at the same time, for many people, they began to see the threat um, from the past into the present. And that has kind of led to the continuous distrust about the um, medical community and um, science in general. Yeah, that's com- that's completely it. And actually, there was another instance I wanted to draw attention to, not because it was like a pharmaceutical company or an organization who was exploiting people this time, but almost as an example of what happens when people's distrust and their fear of these bodies means that they don't, they reject the things that they give them. So in 2003, there was this um, campaign to stop polio that was backed by the World Health Organization. And it was kick, it was called Kick Polio Out of Africa. But in like Northern Nigeria, through three states, uh, so Zeno, Zamfra and Kaduna, basically said they were not rolling out the vaccine anymore and they basically boycotted it. But if you look back at the reasons why the people were sceptical to the vaccine, it kind of eerily connects to some of these things that people are saying they're scared about now. So just before this whole campaign came out, their president, President Badinga, Uh, his administration had started to roll out a population policy where they were saying that, you know, women could only have four children. And, you know, that definitely got people's backs up. And then also at the same time, I think from the sort of studies around Nigeria at that moment, they've said that like in the South where like healthcare was a bit more accessible in the North, like healthcare was basically not that existent. And most people didn't have contact with doctors at all. And so what you had were these people who were turning up to people who had never been, you know, had other issues and never been offered anything from it and um, being offered this, this thing. And so a lot of religious leaders from the community were basically saying to people and telling people not to have the vaccine because yet again, it, the intentions of the vaccine were to like immunize the population or it was to spread diseases like HIV. And they really just didn't trust what these officials were saying to them. And this was despite the fact that the World Health Organization said, you know what, we'll test all the drugs, we'll do it. They had to completely stop what they were doing till 2004. So 
and and this is despite there being like a massive outbreak in Nigeria at the time of like polio and like children dying. Do you know what I mean? People were so afraid that they would rather leave it to in how I'm sure people would say they saw it, but the hands of God, then to take something that this very suspicious person who means nothing to them and they've never seen before is offering them. Anita, thank you so much for coming on the show and speaking to us. Um, just to kick off, could you just tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, sure. So I'm 31. Um, I'm Punjabi and I practice Sikhism. Um, I'm based in Hertfordshire in the UK. And um, I'm a project manager by day. And then any spare time that I've got, I run the Pretty Parcel, uh, which is essentially a small business of mine. Uh, where we focus on meaningful gifts and supportive services uh, for small business. Um, I love to travel, well, used to. I love to train um, and I love Coke Zero. And I'm desperately convincing my husband at the minute to get a pet dog, but it's just not working. Anita, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I know that you've, you have had COVID. Um, do you know how and when was it dis- that you discovered that you had COVID? Yeah, so I've never actually been positively tested for COVID. Um, so March 2020, when everything was kicking off, um, there was obviously no tests available. Um, but I remember sort of just sitting downstairs, coughing, fever, chills. My husband was on a stag um, and I was just watching the news and I was like, there's so much going on with this new thing. And I was like, wait, hang on maybe I've actually got it. So I've never been tested positive, but March 2020 was like when it first kicked off. Without sounding too negative, it's pretty much been downhill from there. Doctors are telling us, you know, it's very hard to to name what long COVID is. Uh, It can take shape in so many different ways and and forms. But one of the things they do define it by is basically systems that have occurred or persist after the sort of six weeks mark and last to about 12 weeks. So in terms of your journey regarding symptoms, what has that been like? It's been really tough, I'm not gonna lie. So um, I'm gonna be very transparent here about how tough the journey has been. So as I mentioned, March 2020 is when I originally got sick. And then over the summer period in 2020, I was going out, socializing as much as you could. And then I just noticed myself getting coughs and colds quite quickly. And I just put it down to the fact that like the exhaustion and fatigue was because we haven't just been out for a few months. And I kind of just bypassed it and didn't really make much sense of it myself. I didn't feel any reason to flag it up. And then come November 2020, 9th of November, I will never forget this because that's the day that like my life literally changed. I got really, really sick just out of the blue. It was a normal day working from home. And I just completely went sick. I had, uh, my heart rate was like 124 just sitting down and it was beating really fast. My chest was sweaty. To put it bluntly, I felt like I was having a heart attack because it just was so, my heart was so constrained that I genuinely thought this was it. Long COVID didn't even exist at that time either. So I went into hospital and they did the relevant checks that they wanted to do. The support, I'll be very honest with you, wasn't great, but equally I understand the NHS was under a lot of pressure um, during that time. And I would say from November all the way up until March this year, I was in denial. I was very much going in hospital, coming out. Symptoms were things like exhaustion, breathlessness, fatigue. Funnily enough, I never had a cough again. 
Um, but I had everything else and it was just life-changing. So long COVID didn't really exist, to be fair, over the winter period. And then March 2020 was when I decided that, you know, enough's enough and I can't work. I can't physically work because I noticed I started to get new symptoms. So, for example, I would sit, I would have a look at a piece of paper and it would take me two hours to digest the information on that piece of paper it could have been something very basic as my name. It could have been an extensive thing about a project that I was working on. But it really was really difficult. And that's when this thing about post-COVID syndrome, long COVID started to come about. So I got referred for the long COVID rehab clinic. And it was it's just been all over the place, if I'm very honest with you, because a lot of it is trial and error. Um, it's life-changing. So obviously at the beginning, I mentioned that I love traveling. I love socializing. I also love going to the gym. None of that exists in my life anymore. And that's not because of the restrictions. That's because of the physical limitations. So long COVID is, I feel like, personally, I feel like that's the next thing that we really need to conquer because lives are changing physically, mentally. You know, I'm having to do symptom management sort of every day. There could be a new symptom. Last week, I had inflammation of the gums two weeks before that I had a stomach ulcer from a side effect from medicine it's very tough and um, so you were talking about this um uh long COVID rehab clinic that you've been referred to and you've been going to I suppose and and earlier you were talking about how obviously when you first started having these like persistent symptoms last end of last year people weren't even describing long COVID um so in terms of like the support that's out there um you know, whether it be something that's provided through the NHS or, you know, I, I want, if there's like support groups, like kind of like grassroots organized, um, could you just speak to a bit about like what you've been making use of and what's been, what's been helpful or lacking and what you want to see more of? Yeah, sure. So um, I would start off with, let's end on a positive. So I'm going to start off with what's lacking. So um, I, by means of support, you know, I was over the course of the last eight months, um, I have been in and out of hospital a few times and the NHS are obviously restricted um, with how much they can take on. But to the point where I think normal practices weren't even being managed well. So I remember, um, you know, being in A&E on Christmas Eve um, of 2020 and my temperature was 39 degrees and um, I wasn't even offered paracetamol just to bring my temperature down. Um, and that's by no way like, am I saying slacking the NHS for any reason at all. But it was just the fact that those basic principles and that support was just not there. I reasoned with everything because in my mind, it was a case of saying, well, we're all going through worldwide as a pandemic. Everybody is pretty much um, trying their best. So just see how things go. So at the very beginning, a huge lack of support. Nobody knew, right? So it just wasn't anything that existed. When I got referred in March to the long COVID clinic, believe it or not, the next available appointment was June. So I still had to wait a good few months before I actually saw someone about the long COVID. So between March and June, that meant me just sitting at home and managing my own symptoms and talking to the GP who, you know, is quite rightly so not sure of the whole scenario either because it's all trial and error. So I feel like there was a lack of support at the very beginning, but it was an understandable thing and there was no sort of bitterness around it. But eventually there did come to a point where my local GP was really passing it off as a panic disorder they were passing it off as panic symptoms. They were saying, like, don't worry about it. Like, it's just mindfulness. And I was like, no, my there is something going on inside of my body. I know my body. It's not been like this before. And also, I suffer from PTSD, anxiety, and depression. So I know what it feels like to have a panic attack. And this is not that, right? 
So um, I became really frustrated with the NHS intern, uh, with NHS and with my local GP. And thankfully, through my project management job and the role that I work in and the organisation, I've got private medical care. So I thought, let me try that route. So I ended up seeing lung specialist, a heart specialist and an infectious disease consultant. All of them, again, at the same position were saying, we just don't know what this is. The symptoms are not making any sense. We think it might be something called chronic fatigue. Um, And that's when things just started to change a little bit. Between that time, my long COVID appointment came around. um, And the support from the long COVID team, I must say, has been pretty much as much as they can do. So, you know, having a conversation on the phone with the doctor for an hour is unheard of. Whereas this long COVID team were really full on going for it. You know, I spent an hour on the phone with the doctor and she went through all of my symptoms. She was very upfront and honest and said, you know, it is a trial and error thing. So if you could pick, it's like pick and mix. They were literally like, if you could pick two symptoms out of your extensive list that you could focus on right now, what would it be? And I was like, well, my breathing and my heart rate is just erratic. Support has been okay on that front. But a lot of it, if I'm very honest with you, a lot of it has been self-driven. I feel like mindset is definitely a thing that's helped me surrounding myself with positive family and friends. Um, I've been doing a lot of mindfulness practices. So yoga, physio, I've been, I've been chucking myself at all of these things, literally. At one point, they did say that exercise, gradual exercise would help. They then later changed their advice and said that it's actually causing relapses. So therefore, from November up until now, I've not been able to train, which leads to a gain of weight. Um, I got a call from the doctor saying my cholesterol's raised and I need to monitor that a little bit. And I'm like, I can't move. I physically can't move. So online resources, I feel like they're lacking or at least I haven't been made aware. To be honest, when I found out this podcast was happening, I was like, thank God, like that people are actually taking this the initiative to, you know, spread the word about long COVID because I feel like I've been really protecting my energy and making sure that I'm not, you know, joining forums that are being negative about the vaccine or negative about long COVID. And there is a Facebook community group for long COVID. Don't like to use the term sufferer, but it's there. I think there's just, there's something missing. There's definitely something missing between NHS and patient, that little in between. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. Um, It sounds really tough, but it sounds like you're really tackling it head on, which is so inspiring to hear. I just wonder, just from a very personal point of view, because obviously there's so much unknown about this and people's bodies are different, people's mindsets are different, but are there like a couple of things that you would say are the things that you do now that you think helps you the most? Yeah, so... um... I, I definitely think this whole thing, I was never into mindfulness. I had no clue what that even meant. But the reality is, is that what I've been kind of chucking myself into is trying out a few different things and seeing which practices work for me. Um, so I know seeing a physiotherapist is going to help because unfortunately, as part of long COVID, you are you do end up having a list of other um, kind of diagnosis. So I've got chronic fatigue. I've got costochondritis. Um, I think I've now got vertigo, which has only come back over the last couple of weeks. I've got gastritis. If you name it, I've got basically a list of symptoms and each individual one needs its own sort of medicine or treatment. Now, that treatment doesn't necessarily, for me anyway, from my experience, I'm not a big fan of taking medicine all the time. Like natural for me is the best way. So I've just been like, okay, what can I do naturally? And I was like, well, 
I'm a human body with organs and I, I truly believe that your mind can change things like 100%. So if I tell myself that I am strong and healthy, then I'm going to feel strong and healthy. And on the down days, which are going to naturally happen, just be kind to myself. So I feel like being kind, being patient, being open and honest, not with just yourself, but also your family, your friends and your colleagues. Like, I think at one point I was getting really frustrated because I was like, nobody understands, nobody gets it. Um, but then how are they supposed to? This is the first time this has happened. So I feel like people were very much used to me being this person who had things in pies, um, was a go-getter, you know, to find five minutes with me would be very difficult because I was just on the fast-paced lane. And then all of a sudden I've been forced to slow down. So I think people have definitely seen a big change in me and they've gone, hang on, something really is wrong with her. But the problem is, is that with long COVID, it's such a silent disease, right? Like physically, I look fine, but mentally and inside of me, I'm just not okay. So I feel like from a support perspective, definitely just surround yourself with positive people and find the practices that work for you. Mm, yeah, you've got a day job, you've got a, a side project, which is like a, it's business in its own right. Um, how have you been balancing these things? And how have you how I mean, it's, I can imagine it certainly impacted to impacted those activities massively. But um, yeah, how how have you been um, dealing with those things alongside it? Yeah, so I feel like with my day job, um, being a project manager, that a project management role can be quite stressful anyway, because you're always adhering to deadlines and um, it can be quite full on. So um, me actually accepting that me working is just not working um, in reality was the first thing that I had to do acceptance. So I had a good chat with my um, organization that I work for. We decided for me to go off on leave. And the first time they said, how about three months? And I was like, three months? I'm only going to need four weeks. Like, I will be fine. Um, three months led to four months off work, and I'm only just gone back phase return. So I think the first thing for me was acceptance. Then the next thing was going, okay, so that's one part of my busy life that's been arranged for me in a way where I know that I can go back to it. I've got the space. But then it was about to make sure that I create the space between me and my business as well, because the last thing that I wanted was for me to just then dive into my business because I had all this spare time. I might have had the time, but I didn't have the energy. So one of the things that my husband says to me is just try and do things step by step, literally tackle one thing first, then move on to the next. So for me, it was a case of going, okay, what can I really do with my business right now? Because rather than it causing stress, which allows for the long COVID to relapse, I needed to make it work for me. So essentially, I just found things that I enjoyed and no one's going to tie me down because it's mine. I decide when I start and when I stop, I've got to look out for number one. So creating the space, accepting everything, doing the things that I enjoy has really helped me balance everything out. Um, Anita, earlier you touched on the vaccine, which is obviously a big topic for us with this episode. We're seeing in terms of statistics, it looks like the BME, Black and Minority Ethnic Groups, the kind of low in uptake of the vaccine. Um, and obviously within that BME category, we're talking about very specific groups sometimes. So we know... Uh, you know, Bangladeshi people have statistically been quite hesitant when it comes to taking the vaccine, as have both Black, African and Caribbean people. But just in terms of you and your community, what would you say the response has been like around you? Um, and thinking intergenerationally as well, like from peers, as well as like people of your parents' age group has been to the vaccine? Yeah, so I think 
from my perspective um, and my community, I would say, like my family and friends that um, I often speak to, I feel like there's been a very, very positive response to the vaccine. But it, it really depends on who the individual is. And one household, you could have three out of the four family members absolutely fine for it. And the fourth one saying, I'm absolutely not going to go for it. Um, so when the vaccine first came out, so my husband's grandparents, they're in the 80s, they live down the road, and they were just asking us what we thought. Now, I actually, I've got a clinical research background. So I automatically, my back goes up a little bit because I'm like, research takes a long time. I think I think I just felt a little bit protective, but I was at the same time saying, but it's your decision to make. That's when I started to notice almost like a generational like difference because I feel like um, Cal's, my husband's grandparents um, in the 80s were very much like, no, we're going to go for it. Like whatever's going to happen is going to happen. And then my between me and my husband, we got talking about, do we really want to have the vaccine? Um, I was very desperate. So there was a lot of information going around long COVID and could the vaccine help that actually? So I was very desperate and I just went for it. Um, family and friends, though, I feel like it's been almost a very tipping thing. People have gone for the vaccine. I would say there's been a positive response, but equally with hesitancy. There's a lot of thing around trust. I feel like also within just my community itself, people really need to understand and, and educate themselves on what the vaccine is. But if those education material is not written in a way that allows for people to understand, how is that possible? It's basic things like communication barriers. So if I was to explain, you know, my dad is born and bred from India um, and he came here when he was very young, about 18 years old, and he still struggles to understand full English. So if you were to try and explain to him what the vaccine does from a scientific perspective, he would not understand. That's just the reality. He sees it as somebody's injecting medicine into you. It's going to take over your body and that's it. So when the vaccine came out, he very much was like, I'm not having it. I'm not having it. But it took me down to sit down and explain a little bit of the science knowledge that I understood to kind of not convince him, but then just an informed decision for himself to educate him. And he was like, that makes sense now. But this is what is missing. I feel like the communication barriers from almost GP to patient. I'm very thankful that I understand English and I can speak English very well. But God forbid that, you know, my a grandparent in the world was on their own and was not able to speak English. And the GP saying you have to take the vaccine, that could be misinterpreted in so many ways. So I feel like there's such a big difference um, on that front. But very lastly, I feel like within, within the sort of um, Indian community, there is this almost mindset of God's plan. Like, it is what it is. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen. So they don't really take it much seriously, I think. And they're not, they don't panic as much because I think they're very much like, well, it's up to him. It's up to God. So I think it's very subjective, very subjective to family, very subjective to age. I think there's a lack of communication um, and understanding. I feel like the material that's available to us, like if we think about the news, like in the UK, it's just, all plain English, we get that, but there's there's no real communication with the people that live here. You know, it's just all very aimed at one particular community and it's just not well thought about, in my opinion. As someone who's actually experienced long COVID, what would you say to like a young person who's maybe on the fence because they, they think to themselves, well, you know, yeah, I, I'm not the most high at risk here in terms of COVID, so why do I need to get the vaccine? Firstly, that disheartens me completely because I... I fell in that category of, I'm not going to get harmed. It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. And I just feel like we need to stop being so naive and thinking that we're invincible because 
the reality is is that it's science it's a disease and all those statistics might show that it impacts a particular um age demographic but we can't just we can't just be playful with that you know so i feel like for youngsters it's a case of saying well what's the risk of me taking it versus not you know and really making that decision but being happy with that decision i mean if i was to relate it back to me being you know i would consider me being in my 30s as a young individual and i never in my life thought that i would go from gym three times a week socializing without getting fatigued you know no limitations to then all of a sudden receiving covid and thinking oh, okay it's just a cough it'll go in two weeks to then having eight months you know with this sickness and new symptoms arise all the day it's not worth it it's just simply not worth it and i'm not going to lie and say that i was all pro vaccine either i my mind has changed along the way at the very beginning i was very much um on par with what other people were saying so you know i'm not really high risk like i, I don't understand the vaccine it's being really rushed but then your mind you 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 kind of just change your mind because you realize well this is probably going to be more beneficial than it is going to be a risk you know so i think it's about people being in control of making their own decisions but make those decisions because you've educated yourself on it not what your peers are doing not what you're seeing in the media not what you know so and so has said go and make your own informed decision by educating yourself i definitely agree with that taking time to engage with the material um and and also taking into consideration your lifestyle and your pre-existing uh yeah conditions that you might have etc um but i definitely agree with your point earlier about the communication and how more can be done in communicating the information clearly so that people can use that to make the decisions and it's i think it's especially difficult when you know over the course like since the start of 2020 up until now we have been throwing so much conflicting messaging from the government and at times wrong um messaging for example regarding face face coverings and stuff like that um so so yeah it's it's definitely a lot of things to to wade through um any i just want to say thank you so much especially just for your your honesty as well i think a lot of people um you know there's this whole feeling sometimes that if you're not 100% pro the vaccine that you're almost like an anti-vaxxer whereas I think the problem is for a lot of people they just have genuine concerns so I can imagine so many of our listeners are going to be able to listen to what you just said and like learn from your story but also like make informed decisions. I think my, my last sort of point would be to, for people to just to be very independent you know be independent make your decisions based on what you genuinely think is okay and if you're clouded by things that are on media if you're you know you've got voice of doubt in your mind because so and so has said something to you take time away from social media walk away from everything because this is your health ultimately so whether you take the vaccine or not it's your body your mind and your health so you have to ask yourself whether you want to risk it or not we always like to end with just um getting you know uh, some info about how our listeners can follow your work and find maybe your your um your business and all this kind of stuff so where should we go uh, so you can find us on instagram so we're at the pretty parcel co um i'm always active on there and my dms are always open so if anybody's got any questions about long covid or anything that i've mentioned in here my dms are open so feel free to contact me
I will just share a bit of um, information about the vaccines which are available on the UK uh, markets. So the two vaccines that have been um, offered to people are the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine and the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine. They're slightly different from each other. So the Oxford AstraZeneca one is a viral vector vaccine and the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine is an mRNA vaccine, which is the first mRNA vaccine of its kind. And both of these vaccines don't contain the virus itself. They carry a bit of um, information about the virus. So in the mRNA vaccine, it's a piece of the genetic material, the messenger RNA material, which is translated into your body. And then your body recognizes, um, uses that information to build almost like a prototype of the, the virus, but then immediately destroys it and remembers, okay, the next time I see this, I have to destroy it. Whereas the viral vector one um, is using a carrier um, tra- to transfer some of that um, information into your um, into a body. And similarly, the body recognises that it's something to be destroyed and remembers it for the next time. Yeah, so just to mention, uh, it's the mRNA vaccines which are being offered to people under 40. So that's Pfizer-BioNTech Bi- Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine. And if you're under 18, you'll only be offered Pfizer-BioNTech. And in terms of um, the efficacy, neither of these vaccines give 100% immunity. That's really important to know uh, because obviously we, I think in our, I think people are hearing about people who've had the vaccine and then got COVID. And that's not to say the vaccines don't work because nobody said that it was going to be 100% effective. And obviously these numbers are uh, are still being monitored as more and more people take them. But the, the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, in terms of efficacy, just in terms of the numbers from the trials, the vaccine has been shown to prevent 95% of COVID cases. And the AstraZeneca one uh, showed around 70% of cases in individual And I think what also is coming through is that in the people who do end up getting COVID after the vaccines, their symptoms, the the chances of developing severe cases is also dropped. Common side effects are all quite mild. So you can get an arm ache, you could potentially have some fever symptoms. Overall, the common symptoms are mild and they disappear after, you know, one to two weeks maximum. In terms of rarer side effects, there is a there is a long list of these that you can look at, but they are rare. And one big one that everyone here, I think, has been talking about is the blood clots around the AstraZeneca um, vaccine. And like Rona said, that's not um, that's not being offered to definitely people who have family history of blood clots or have conditions that might increase the chance of blood clots. Also, it's not being um, re- recommended for younger people. Um, but for that one in particular, the chances of getting blood clots from AstraZeneca is extremely low. So it's 0.0004%, which again, like for context, it's much, much rarer than getting blood clots from the contraceptive pill or even from taking an airplane. So definitely have a look into that.
One other thing that's probably worth talking about as well is that the vaccine shouldn't be seen as a end-all and be-all in the sense that, you know, just as you, it's not 100% immunity that you would get from it, it's also not, you know, the research is still being done about how much people can still transmit COVID whilst being vaccinated. So all of these things still need to be, you, you still need to be taking consideration of like, social distancing where appropriate and you know good hygiene practices that I'm sure we we have all um, improved on since the pandemic and you know wearing masks especially around vulnerable people so um, I think that's for me something that I want to also keep remembering for me myself personally. Vanessa, thank you so much for being on the show today. Um, just to kickstart, um, please, can you tell us a bit about who you are and what it is you do? Um, no, definitely. Um, no, thank you for having me. So um, I'm Vanessa Rapier. Um, I'm a consultant in sexual health and HIV, um, and I'm based in East London. Um, and aligned with that, a lot of my, um, I do research and I'm an honorary senior lecturer at Queen Mary University of London so um, and a lot of my work is looking at race ethnicity um, access to um, services and gender and health so just looking at all those um, intersections um, and I'm an East Londoner I was born and bred in East London but um, originally from Ghana so I've got that duality which I love to lead yeah that's me obviously this episode has really touched on the vaccine and some of the concerns that people have. And one that has definitely popped up has been like, if I'm on medication for something else, how complementary is the vaccine for me? And I, I know that's like a huge minefield I'm asking you to speak on, but as far as you know, for your sort of patients that you deal with and the sort of medication that maybe comes through with in your clinics, how complementary would you say the vaccine is to take alongside other treatment? No, I think that that's it, it, that's so important, and you're right. That's been um, one of the key things that people have said. Um, so w I always step back to from that and say to people that um, often when we when we looked at COVID and we looked how it affected people, the key thing is, is that it affected people differently. So some people were more at risk of getting it um, and some people were more at risk of um, having poorer outcomes from it. Um, and one of the groups um, that had poorer outcomes were those that had other medical problems as well. So we, we were very clear that there was a real need that if you did have other medical conditions that required other medications, we were really keen that you did get the vaccine because the risk of the complications of getting COVID far outweighed the risks of taking the vaccine. But even as we said that message, it was... People are thinking, well, you know, what about me as an individual with the tablets that I'm taking? Is it safe to do that? And I, I often said that for most people, um, for, for many people, the when we look at the constituents of the vaccine, actually, a lot of it is water. 
um, and there are a number of other um, components in it, obviously, but um, there's very few things within it that can call, that causes an allergic reaction. And there's also very few things within it that can interact with other drugs. So for most people, it, it, it's been it's been safe to use with your medication. But I also just said to people that, you know, speak to your doctor about it. Um, and and have that reassurance so that when you're going to take the vaccine, you don't feel that you're going there with these anxieties. You've had you've had a space to talk about it. I was just going to bring up another topic, which I think now increasingly is um, adding to that anxiety around the decision around the vaccine, specifically for young people. And that's about long COVID. From what we have found in our research, it seems like there's still so much to know about. What's coming through is that there's a larger amount of young people than researchers and clinicians would have expected to be affected by long COVID. Nobody's saying that the vaccine is guaranteed that you won't catch COVID, but it seems that it lowers the risk that if you did catch it. Um, so, yeah, bearing all those things in mind, what would you possibly say to a young person who is on the fence about taking the vaccine, but, you know, worrying about long COVID? Again, another really good question. I, I think, so first of all, I'm a big proponent of health literacy. So not just doing things for the sake of it, but having the means and understanding um, the health information that's put in front of you. And part of that is questioning. Um, So it is really important. Long COVID is very real. It can manifest in so many different ways and that potential impact cannot be underestimated. And the other thing is that you've got people like that had COVID, had fairly mild symptoms, didn't even realize they had COVID and went for a routine test and found they had COVID and then developed long long COVID. So there's no um, clear link with severity of COVID. So just because you have um, milder disease doesn't mean that you're not going to get long COVID. So, and so I think that's really important as well. And I think that, in the same way that we people say to me, oh, I'm concerned about the longer term impact of um, the vaccine. I always rebut and say, and I'm concerned about the longer term impact of COVID and having had COVID on the body. So that's really important for people to consider as well. I'm doing work at the moment in terms of encouraging people to talk about it and not feel ashamed because there's... So already stigma emerging about having long COVID and not wanting to go to the doctor and say, actually, I feel really, really exhausted. My mood is low. You know, I, I, I just don't want to do anything. I can't do anything. And for some people to acknowledge that uh, is extremely difficult. So there's, there is a lot of learning to be done, but there's also a lot of support that needs to be done for those that are going through it at the moment. Vanessa, your work has covered barriers to engagement, specifically uh, for marginalised people. And I think when it comes to the vaccine, we've seen that a large number of black and minority ethnic groups are not taking up the vaccine as quickly as obviously their sort of white peers. What would you say or what do you think are the main sort of barriers that need to be overcome to increase uptake I think there are many layers to it, I always say. Um, I think it it is rooted in mistrust. It's mistrust of societal structures. 
um, and it's understandable <laughs> mistrust. Um, and I think when, as different heterogeneous communities, but the thing that you have in common is that you don't feel seen, valued, or advocated for. Um, you are not going to trust someone who comes on TV um, who has never ever engaged or acknowledged communities before and says and says take the vaccine. Um, so mistrust is a real a, a real issue. I think that we can't get away from history. Um, we're de we're always defined, influenced by history, and there has been history of unethical medical research um, and some um, many years ago and some in our lifetime. So it's it's not that far removed. Um, and, I, and I think that even being aware that things have changed, it, it still affects people in that decision-making. But I also think that, you know, we, we can't underestimate what COVID has done to everyone's mindset, experiences, um, you know, the causing all these existential crises of who can I trust? What, what you know, everything is changing. I don't understand it. And I, and I think that it's happened at pace. It's happened really fast. And I find a lot of people are saying, I just want to wait. I want to Build, I want to see that knowledge is being built up. Um, and again, um, I explore that with them, but I also respect that. Um, and I, and I, um, I really do understand it. Um, for me, I think, you know, vaccine uptake, engagement is all a journey. And if you look at anything, there are some people, there are early adopters. I'm always honest, I had COVID in December. And uh, I was so upset I got in December because I knew the vaccine was coming. So I couldn't believe that I, you know, at the last minute. So I was very, very upset. <laughs> but then I was just waiting to take the vaccine and grab it, you know. But I've had different experiences. I've seen different things. And so seeing people in hospital, seeing people um, in ITU, you know, changes your mindset. Um, but then you've got people that will take their time. And I think that the work that we need to do is just work with people along that journey and um, and respect that as well. Yeah. I think this point about mistrust is so, um, so interesting and complicated because there's the historical roots in unethical medical trials and practices that have definitely gone on. And like you said, some of them not even that long ago. And there's also been government messaging early on during the pandemic that clearly didn't lead to good outcomes. And and so I think that mistrust, like you said, is off. It can very much be justified. And I just wonder, what is your advice to people who want to keep that a kind of healthy skepticism and critical thinking as part of the way they engage with things, whilst making personal health decisions? And also, if you had any good publicly available resources that people really can engage with to find out information on these topics. You know, I love what you say about, you know, that healthy skepticism, because, you know, as I said, that it is that part of um, health, health literacy. I, I, I think that with, with being in something that we've never been in before, there is also something about questioning and determining and understanding, but also moving at pace so that you can move forward and things can go forward in your life. And so we are interconnected in COVID 
because of the way that it's transmitted, um, because of how it's impacted everyone. And so there is something about trusting science together. So there's, um, there's this personal responsibility, that aspect of thinking about how it could impact someone else, um, but also recognising that, you know, you've got space to make your own decision and you shouldn't feel forced, you shouldn't feel coerced um, and it's got to sit right with you. And I say to people to often go to their local council websites because they have an area about vaccines. They've got these links, they've got these webinars and I would encourage people to just take the time to listen to the webinars, listen to podcasts like this um, and build the information. Also, if you've got questions, write them down and then ask your doctor or um, on the on most websites and the council websites have someone that you can go and contact if you've got any queries about the vaccine. So in the same way that you're cautious, be proactive in trying to find information. Um, Vanessa, I was just wondering what your opinion was on on some of the things that we've seen the government do to almost incentivize people to take the vaccine. I know obviously the word vaccine passports has been like ringing around. I just wondered what you thought about this approach as in this in our current situation. I'm torn and I'm being really honest about it because I think that um, as you've said, there have been you know, not so great decisions through this um, pandemic, um, which has influenced um, people's trust of the system. Um, there, yes, but the key thing is, is that we are in a pandemic that we've never been in before. So everyone is still learning and everyone, and I, one thing I always want to reassure people is that there is so much work going behind the scenes of fantastic people that are trying to think about how best to support people in that decision making. Not coercion, but trying to give a number of um, safe spaces for you to go to, um, bringing it to more convenient places like Westfield, um, you know, things like that. So there's people thinking about um, convenience, um, messaging, etc. But the issue is, is that what works for some won't work for others. And that's the whole thing about behavior change. You're trying to change the behavior of so many different people. And so you make, you, you kind of sometimes do like a scattergun approach. You give different things that will maybe appeal to different people. So I, I acknowledge that. And I think that it, that is important but my, the reason I'm torn is that um, with incentives, for some it can be a positive thing, but for some it can feel like coercion. You know, we are all driven by different things. Um, and I think that one of the things that has come out a lot in the work that I do is people's concerns about being manipulated and losing autonomy in society. And so as soon as you say... Um, vaccine passports and mandatory that just feeds into that narrative of we are losing control and we are trying and we are um blindly walking into a system that is trying to control us and again i i always listen and respect that but i always then challenge and say so what should we do what is the right approach um because we are in a pandemic that is killing people um and is um, affecting people's quality of life. So what do we do? 
Um, and so I, I, I am torn by it. I, I am, I'm always honest about it. I am torn. Um, but I think there are things that we need to put in place to keep day-to-day life going and some things require mandating um but i think the way that it's positioned and the way that it's communicated um can make or break decisions and i think a lot of work needs to be done in engaging communities so they understand and they have an opportunity to give suggestions of better ways to manage things um I just want to take us down a slightly different um, line after that and talk a little bit about the development of the vaccines. So I came across this talk and presentation you gave with Positive East. That was last summer, right after the first wave. And at that time, you were asked a question about the vaccine, which obviously were in early development at that stage. And you mentioned that, you know, it's really important that these trials are done with good representation across genders and ethnicity, as well as good uptake among different demographic de- demographics to be sure that the vaccine works well for everyone. As far as you know, um, how do you think the both the AstraZeneca and Pfizer vaccines have lived up to that hope? And what are your thoughts on this now? Gosh, it's, it's, fu- it's funny to think back um, to those times and doing the, uh, the, the, the webinar then. So I think... The core trials that informed the vaccines to be rolled out in real in the real world are um, the, the trials that have happened, and they had, in terms of representation, they had um, about we're looking at around the ten percent mark um, for those from of black ethnicity. Don't quote me 100%, but around the 30, 10 to 13% of um, uh, Asian ethnicity and being careful with Asian because different countries view Asian as different. What do I think of that number? I'm glad we got to that number, but I wish we had more. So by that level of participation and representation, it gave me added reassurance when I um, was speaking to people about the vaccine because they would say, you know, did it involve people like me? And I would first of all say that there was no indication that being of different ethnicities would affect how you would respond to the vaccine. But we all want to see people like us in things and we all want representation. And um, I could comfortably say that there was a, a, a fair degree of representation. But the the better representation has happened in the real world because as the vaccines have been rolled out, they've been rolled out globally. Um, they have been rolled out across many different ethnicities, across gender, etc. So there is a, another layer to this, which is about um, representation in, in trials in itself and where we go from here. And I this is something that is, I'm, you know, really passionate about. Very much as Rhoda said earlier about what drove her to to develop um, Third is about amplifying voices. For people to participate in research, it's not just about being um, being in the trial and receiving something. It's about being in the space to read research proposals and question it and also say, you're doing this research. I want more research about X. But if we don't participate, challenge, know what's happening, we can never change it.
You you talked about the rollout of the vaccine. I just wanted to touch on that slightly as well, because so last year you published this study with your colleague and it was addressing the disproportionate number of people of the BAMI community having worse outcome from COVID, even after adjusting for age and other risk factors. And you were talking about how to prioritize who gets the vaccine when the vaccine arrived. While there's not been anything that I've seen that talks about prioritization based on what ethnic background you come from, obviously there's been a prioritization on key workers, for example, which have a higher representation of people from those backgrounds. Um, But thinking on this point now, do you think enough has been done to take this into account or what more do you think could be done even now, perhaps, in this area? With the prioritisation of the vaccines, so a number of months into the rollout, um, ethnicity was included in prioritisation. So there was a risk score that was put in to shift the priority groups. And I think that, you know, taking a step back and reflecting, um, as I said, it was affecting different people um, uh, differently. And that's what guided the priority groups of having older age, having comorbidities, etc. But we had really early signals that um, ethnicity was had a key part. The the issue of um, ethnicity was particularly relevant about how we engage communities to understand and have knowledge and awareness about the vaccine. So it wasn't even just um, getting them to have it earlier. I feel that more needed to have been done earlier to mitigate what we're seeing now in terms of the concerns about vaccines. One of the things that I think has come from the lockdowns uh, during the pandemic has obviously been that people have tried to invest more in their bodies. And whether that's been through like fitness or uh, for a lot of people, it's been through you know, taking vitamins, researching about how they can strengthen their immune system. What would you say to someone who is maybe, has maybe started relying on these vitamins and things like that as almost a substitute to taking the vaccine? So I've been one of those people um, in terms of changing their lifestyle. So I was, I, I picked uh, my teeth. <laughs> It's going to be my focus to do that, but kind of well-being. And I, I, I like you say, I, I encourage it. And I think that um, that whole reframing of health and well-being and um, not to put too much pressure on people because, you know, that can have a lot of pressure in trying to do all that well-being work, but being aware, being more attuned to it, um, I think is really important. Um, and, and what I say is that um, it's really important, but it's not a substitute. And it's, it's important in alongside, in conjunction with the other, um, the other precautions that we have in place. So, you know, I always used to say to um, family and friends, you know, you've got your hands face space, but take the ginger, the, the garlic, the pineapple, you know, do all of that. But then when there's a vaccine there, strongly consider to take it as well, because it's all about our having our ad- added armory. That's why that's the way I viewed it is that um, one one precaution in 
it doesn't work in isolation. So washing my hands alone will not stop me from being exposed to COVID and passing it on. So, so I add that with wearing my mask keeping social distancing but then I add that with looking after myself so that whatever I'm exposed to if I'm able to boost my immune system and but actually also boost my mental health to deal with anything which I think is crucial all power to that you know it's, it's making you more um, physically and um, mentally resilient but that doesn't mean that vaccines don't have a part to play don't sacrifice one for the other we are in a time that um things are ever changing and we we're getting um different knowledge each day so how do i make myself in the best position to respond to all these different changes and for me i i, I feel that it is hand space space where where it's appropriate um health and well-being what you do to that plus the vaccine if it's if you feel it's appropriate for you so that's why i normally encourage people to uh, you know how i've reflected on it um we've talked so much about medical literacy on this um in this hour already um something that we've just been looking at um rona and i over literally the last 24 hours is like some some people who are obviously these side effects are rare, but some people are having, for example, um, quite intense rashes after um, receiving the vaccine. And obviously, it's just quite scary to look at. Um, And some of these effects, first of all, they are very rare. And they are listed in the possible side effects of of these vaccines, you know, it's not hidden or anything like that. But I just wondered if you could speak to if with people who have worries about these rare side effects, and also how to engage with that information. Because I think for a lot of people like myself, um, you know, I know there's like common side effects, and then there's like a long list of rare side effects. And I treat that like terms and conditions of like a software that I download, I'm not just like, yeah, agree, and download. And actually, maybe people should actually read those with a bit more attention, depending on their own personal uh, health situation, for example. So, yeah, I just wonder if you could speak a little bit to those worries. Again, um, completely um, understandable. And as you say, it's really important for people to know this. And what's really different in COVID and with the vaccines is that people are actually showing what happens on social media. So... You would, if you had any other medication, like you say, you will have your common side effects, you will have the rarer side effects, and you wouldn't know about it. So you're taking, you're taking your medication in Scarborough, you're taking it in Tower Hamlets, but you would never know. But now, social media has just transformed that. So every, every um, possibility is right there, and it's visual as well and um and it's articulated in ways that resonate with you um and so what i say is that we are we are seeing things that we expected number one and what was communicated to people um we are um also watching for things that we may not be aware of um and that's like anything and that's when in the uk you have the yellow card reporting system so if you have a um what you think is a side effect you can go online um, you can tell your gp and they will record it and send it for send it on and believe me people do that every day and giving that in and it's the responsibility of those that are looking at that so the regulation agents authority 
to look at it and say, see, is there any early associations? Are there any early links that we didn't predict? What do we need to look into further? And people are doing that. But at the moment, when you look at everything and you exclude other things that could have influenced that response, generally what we are seeing is the common side effects and the slightly rarer side effects that may not be, that are not long lasting or significant, but they've they've happened. But it may last a week, it may last two weeks. The other thing for me is that when we had the issues about things about the blood clots, etc., it was really scary. And people thinking, oh, my gosh, like, you know, I knew it. You know, this is it. This is what we're talking about. But also I, I asked I was talking to people about but also look at the way look at the response. Look how it was picked up. Look how um, what happened in, you know, Rejigging, re re um, designing a whole, uh, you know, a national vaccine scheme because you've noticed some data in a small number of people. But even if it affects one person so detrimentally, it's significant. So we don't belittle that. But then you, you're looking at that number and you're trying to respond to it, and there was a swift response to it. So it shows that you've got mechanisms in place that do pick up anything that is extreme, pick up things that we were not expecting. Um, and I think everything in life um, has this, but as I keep saying, we've never been this exposed to it. We've never really um, seen science unfold in this way. You know, we're not normally privy to it. Um, but um, unless it's in your field. But now everyone knows about it. You know, I, I, I often laugh. My mum, you know, I was listening to my mum giving advice to people and I was like, where are you getting this from? And then she would be like, you know, I've done my own research and things, which I loved. But it's, you know, everyone has gained information and understanding and that isn't a typical, that, that isn't typical. So it's, I say to people that it's expected, look at it, but it's about kind of channeling out the noise and thinking what are the hard facts that we're seeing and it's all about risk benefit i I can't promise anyone that something negative will never ever happen to them but on the law of averages on the risk benefit what do you think is the what do you think is a better decision for you um and i think that's an individual decision for everyone and so it's such a great conversation. I think one a particular point that came through as well is like the importance of an interdisciplinary approach. If more communication and work was done before the vaccine was ready to engage with, you know, communities like we, there was already models predicting the, the low uptake, then it would look very different. It's just, you know, that's like, that's like a communication versus science coming together thing that clearly once again, hasn't happened successfully. We've seen so many things manifest over this, you know, 18 months, wherever we are in it all. And um, we've had the intersection of health inequalities in itself, which have been here for years and years, been talking about it for years and years, but it's suddenly having a voice, which is great, but we've got to do something about it. We've got um, Black Lives Matter We've known what's what has driven that movement, and but we've got to do something about it. And in all of these things that come together, that have come together in this um, year, 
alongside COVID, the key thing is about how we mobilize from here. And to mobilize, it's got to be collective. And it's got to be, um, as you say, interdisciplinary and giving the space to listen to different disciplines and then drawing it together and connecting the dots. Too much happens in silo and in silo, great things happen. But to achieve the scale of change that we want to achieve, to dismantle and rebuild in the way that we want to do, it cannot be done in isolation. That's a key thing that we, I really hope that we, we, we learn from this um, and we sustain the momentum because, you know, some people get tired and then some people have got energy. And if you bring people together, when that person's tired, the other person will pull them along, you know, and that's the thing because challenging, dismantling, questioning is exhausting. Um, and responding to it is exhausting. But if you do it in, co in collaboration, um, you know, it, it's, it's achievable um, and sustainable. Wow. Very, very inspirational um, note to end on. Thank you so much for, for giving us such amazing answers. Um, we'd like to just end with um, having our audience know where to follow um, your work or um, yeah, you on social media. So on Insta, I'm under Dr. Vanessa Rapier, um, and that's A-P-E-A, -A, um, all, all one word. And then um, on also LinkedIn, and then on Twitter as well, um, I'm Vanessa underscore Rapier there. So yes, they're in all those spaces. Yeah, that was such an amazing sort of few hours, I think, speaking with these guests. I feel I feel like my brain has significantly been enlarged with the knowledge that they've shared. Yeah, totally. I think one of the things that's the things that strikes me about this moment now is that obviously we've had like our quote unquote freedom day, right? So now we're completely open and um I can sense it both from myself and from a lot of people around me that this really big push to just like, you know, return to the some form of normality um, post-COVID, but feeling very much like pre-COVID. And, you know, this is something I can completely sympathize with, especially when you consider a lot of young people. So people who are like, in uni and should have had like amazing fresher weeks and stuff like that now finally get the chance to like party and and do all the things that you know we've all missed so much but at the same time I'm also wary of the fact that the pandemic isn't really over and COVID though we have a potential solution to it in the form of the vaccine is not like has not disappeared and the office for national statistics actually show that Right now, you know, the largest affection is amongst 16 to 24 year olds. That's considering the fact that at least one third of 18 to 29 year olds haven't had their first dose. That makes complete sense because, you know, that category has missed out on so much. But 
My biggest gap is that I think if you're someone who's keen to drop like the, the mask, social distancing restrictions and stuff like that, but you're not putting in, in place any form of other sort of protection, you're potentially, potentially putting yourself at risk of getting infected. And, you know, as we have seen on the show, though the outcomes of COVID on younger people is less adverse, there is still the risk of long COVID. And Rona, I think one of the things that we set out to also talk about is whether we think the vaccine might be used as a tool for recalibrating the scales when it comes to social justice around the and linking it to the pandemic. And through our discussions, and I don't know whether this is what you meant at the time, but I think from our discussions with our guests and talking about, you know, the 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 historical misgivings in medical and scientific research. I almost feel like, you know, linking those things together and people's mistrust and people wanting to find other informations for themselves is almost an opportunity where people with more focus and energy and point shining a light on, you know, this, perhaps like some of the misgivings and some of the ways that they want the research to be improved can lead to an outcome where, like our guests were saying, that representation is coming, like people are finding putting themselves into places where their voices can really make a meaningful difference to how research is done. And, you know, why should anyone trust any of these medical trials and, and why should we trust the government? You know, these things are not a given. Why should we, least of all, why should we trust big pharmaceutical companies? But none of those things are mutually exclusive to the fact that, for example, the vaccine working or to the fact that we can, improve upon how things have been done in the past. I think that's an excellent point. I think for me, the whole idea, idea of recalibrating it, it feels like there'd be a, a very big scale to tip. But I do believe that prevention of like things getting worse is more clearly in sight, just because I think through speaking to everyone and and just really realizing how interconnected so many different factors are and how entrenched sometimes these these problems are yeah that that feels like a hard task in its in itself but i think we are also potentially coming to this space where the vaccines might be used in a way that um could exacerbate some of those things it's really important that we keep, you know, as much as we incentivize people and we try to share the information, we don't start to lean on a sort of discourse which suggests that we're forcing anyone to make a decision. Because also, like, I think a lot of these conspiracies also come from a place of people being fearful about how people in power are forcing them to to uh, use their bodies and what they're almost putting on their bodies. And so in a weird way, if we, you know, perpetuate that, <laughs> we're kind of feeding into those theories. So obviously the vaccine passport is not great for people who don't, countries who don't have the vaccine yet. And then on the flip side, it's if I'm a person who is unvaccinated but have a negative lateral or flow or PCR test, why should I be treated differently? Why should I have to quarantine longer than someone who's just been double vaccinated? Because we've seen, the facts are, we've seen that people who are just double vaccinated 
though the chances are, are lower, they can still catch COVID. And so I think what happens is when we apply policy that doesn't quite 110 percent it's it's intended to help but it doesn't quite 110 percent make that much sense people who read between the lines say i know what you're trying to do and i don't like that so i think for me i'm not a big person when it comes to these explicit policies that I feel have been taken on board to try and coerce people to take the vaccine. I think it's much more useful to continue to let people understand the risks of COVID and the benefits of the vaccines, to keep on honing that through as your messaging. Because if you just make it difficult people not to have the vaccine, you're still going to have, I don't think that's going to solve the situation either on both sides, because I think even you'll find people who will get vaccinated and not maybe have very positive things to say about it because they haven't done it of their own accord. So, yeah, I want to thank our guests again for coming on the show and giving us their amazing insights and stories. Um, You can find out where to follow them on the third website in the show notes um, of this episode. And you can also find um, some links to some resources where you can read more about the vaccine and the books that we mentioned on the show. So um, please feel free to head to the thirdmagazine.co.uk website um, yeah, to check out the show notes and also other episodes of this show. And if you haven't already got your copy of Third's fifth edition, Defiant Beauty, it is out now. Please head to all major retailers and grab your copy or to the Third web store where you can buy one online. Stay tuned online at Third Magazine. That's Third with Free Eyes. I'm Tribe. I'm Daniela. And I'm Rona.